We're glad for you to be here. We've got several visitors with us. Thank you so much for making it a point to come and to worship with us and to enjoy a time of Bible study this evening. Our Bible study uh, for the past, well, I guess uh, seven or eight weeks, I guess, has been all about the spiritual disciplines, about how we um, exercise ourselves to godliness, how we use the tools that God's given us in order to draw nearer to him and more like his son Jesus and to be uh, closer to the heart of God because that's really the only reason why we'd want to do anything uh, for a God's service is to draw near to him, to love him more fervently, to obey him more faithfully, and to follow him uh, the way that he wants us to. When we talk about worship, let me open up by just asking a question. You hear men pray about worship, and you hear men pray sometimes at the beginning of our worship, sometimes at the end of our worship, uh, especially when we gather together on Sundays. What are some of the phrases that they use with regard to our worship, or you use, I guess, if you're a gentleman that, uh, that prays and that full, leads us in prayer on a regular basis? May the worship be acceptable in your sight. All right, that was one of the very first ones that I'd thought of. What's another one? I thought, sorry, go ahead. Help us to worship in spirit and in truth. We'll talk more about that one here in just a moment. Forgive us, okay? It's interesting that we can say forgive us at the very beginning of the service and then forgive us of our sins, you know, if there's a prayer in the middle of the service, kind of wonder, have we sinned a whole lot since, you know, we, we got the forgiveness? Anyway, that's just one of those things, one of those uh, prayer habits, I guess, that we get into and patterns that, uh, that we think about. Y'all haven't said one that I've uh, thought of on a regular. Um, it was actually number two after um, help this worship be acceptable. May this worship come up before you as a... Sweet-smelling aroma. You ever thought, how do we know if it's a sweet-smelling aroma to God? Turn in your Bible, please, just for a moment to Isaiah chapter 1 as we get started with this discussion of worship. Isaiah chapter 1, and we're going to look at chapter, or verses 11 through 15 here in this chapter. How do we know if our worship is a sweet-smelling aroma to God? How can we know? Is that something that's even uh, discernible or tangible that we can look at? Isaiah is prophesying to a people who are very much like the people of our day. There's a whole lot of religiosity going on, but there's very little worship. There's a whole lot of people that are content to play church, and yet there's very little faith in actually doing what God has said. From Isaiah chapter 51, or sorry, I go immediately to chapter 51, because it's uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 15. Note what the God says to these people through Isaiah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed, fed and cattle. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come and appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons, your appointed feast, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes to you. Though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood." God, on this occasion, through Isaiah, says to these people, stop bringing me those things. I cannot stand your worship. 
I cannot stand listening to your prayers. I can't stand the blood of the, the animals that you continually sacrifice. Now the question is, did God command those things to those people? Did God command that worship? Yes, he absolutely did. What's the problem? The problem is, is that out of the hearts, they're doing all sorts of other things, we would say, Monday through Saturday, and then when they come and they offer to God what he wants on Sunday, as it were, or on the Sabbath, or whenever they have the new moons or the feast days, or uh, the times that they come to the temple, they're offering, and the heart above all things is not right. I wonder if God would say to us, your worship doesn't come up before me as a sweet-smelling aroma, because... Primarily, your hearts are not right. Problem is, one of the chief problems is, is that I believe from a very young age, we as Americans especially have been trained to be consumers. We've been trained to be consumers. Everything appeals to me. Everything is aimed at making me happy. Now, if I take that mindset that all of us at least at one point or another have bought into, what becomes a natural consequence of that? Worship becomes about us, as Courtney says. It becomes all about me. How does that take on a physical shape? How does that take on an appearance? What types of ways does that manifest that worship becomes all about me? What's that? <laughs> Mood lighting, okay. What... Sorry? One more time. It becomes an idol, okay? Something that I bow down to and don't really have to, to well, I can sacrifice whatever I want, and that's, that's going to be okay. What else? Anything is acceptable. God's just going to offer, or God's going to accept it just because I offer it, and that's all right, because it's what appeals to me, therefore he's going to accept it. What else? It makes me feel good. Um, you ever heard anybody come out of worship and say, oh, I just thought that was so boring. I didn't get anything out of that. We're used to being people that are wowed and excited and satisfied and entertained and served and courted and performed for that we just get in this natural mindset that if this doesn't appeal to me, if it's something that I think is boring or something that I think is disinteresting, then it automatically just is not worthy of my time. Consider just a moment the shape of the building. You come in here and you look at the way that the pews are arranged and you look at the way that where the pulpit is. Who would you think is the one who is really performing and the one who's responsible for the entertainment? If we were just looking at this from secular eyes. This kind of looks like a concert hall, doesn't it? And in looking at a concert hall, we get the impression that whoever stands up here on the stage has to be pleasing to me. It has to be somebody that's entertaining and somebody that's, uh, that's going to wow us and somebody that we can sit and we can give, as is so common, the thumbs up or the thumbs down. Yes, this pleased me. Yes, I like this. Or, well, uh, Chuck Horner, one a Bible class teacher, he, he gave me this phrase in sign language. I said, what is that? And he said, it's boring, boring. We get the idea that that's, we're the audience and we're the ones that give the thumbs up and the thumbs down. When in reality, brothers and sisters, and we're talking about worship, 
The truth is, is that if we're talking about it in terms of a concert hall and talking about it in terms of a stage, every single one of us is standing up there. And there is but one in the audience, and that is God. And as we perform for him, if you like, as we offer to him what he's asked for, we'll talk more about that here in just a moment, he really is the only one that has the right to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down with regard to our worship. I wonder if God would say, like he said to the people of Isaiah, is to quit offering me that. The truth may be that many regularly come to worship, but many may not regularly worship God on Sundays. What we're interested in with regard to the spiritual discipline of worship is talking about how it can be something that can cause us to draw near to the heart of God the way that he wants to. There are three concepts that are going to help us to worship from now on, and the very first one is one that I've already given you here on this screen, and that is that worship must be intentional. I want you to think about the intentionality of worship. The basic definition, if you want one, of worship is this. Worship is an intentional meeting that's planned between man and God. It always has been. Look at these scriptures with me, please, just for a few moments. Flip over to Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. Could say sing it, but we're just going to look at it for this evening. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. The psalmist saying, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? There is an appearance that the psalmist says, I am longing for. There's an appearance that he says, I'm panting for. Just like a, a deer out in the wild is panting for the water and knowing that he needs it. And there's something special about that water that he's not going to get in any other place. And as he's doing that, the psalmist says, when's my turn to drink deeply from standing before God and being in his presence? In fact, he goes on and gives the reason for it because there's some that are coming along and, uh, and tormenting him. There are people that are saying to him, where is your God there in verse 3? When shall I go and appear before God? Worship is an intentional meeting between God and man. In the Old Testament, and here's a couple of scriptures to think about, in the Old Testament, it was appointed a specific place where man would go and meet with God. And where was that? It was the tabernacle first, but then it was the temple later on. Flip over to Exodus 25, verse 8. Exodus 25, verse 8. I left this one off of here, but uh, you can go ahead and jot that down under the point number one. Exodus 25, and verse 8. God calls out Israel out of Egypt, and that's the first about uh, 15, 20 chapters of, of the book of Exodus. Chapter 20 is where they, God begins to give them the law. But after he gives them the law, one of the very first things that he begins to do, and actually the rest of the book of Exodus is all about it, is the commandment of Exodus 25 and verse 8. God said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God said, these are my covenant people. From the agreement that we struck and from the, from the blood of the covenant that's going, to be, uh, that's going to ratify this covenant, he says, I'm going to be a person or I'm going to be the God of these people that's going to dwell in the midst of these people. 
And as these people would come into the sanctuary, they would be coming into the house of God so that they could come and offer him uh, the, the, um, the sacrifices that he wanted. Look at Psalm 100, verse 4. Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. Here is the picture of somebody that's going into worship and they're going into his courts. We're not on our court. You know, as they talk about home field advantage and we talk about uh, uh, the balls in your court. When we go into the house of God, when the Old Testament people went into the temple, they were going into the court of God. They were going into his house. One more passage back from the patriarchal times. Look at Genesis 22 and verse 5. Genesis 22 and verse 5. Genesis 22, Abraham sacrifices Isaac. That's on the banana card, I believe, that your kids are learning about. Genesis 22 and verse 5, God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I should tell you. Verse 5, Abraham goes, and it says, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and the lad, and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. What does that mean? I will go yonder and worship. What's the implication of that? Was Abraham worshiping where he was standing right there? Yes or no? No. What he said was, I'm going to follow the commandment of God. God said, you're going to go and sacrifice on this mountain of which I'm going to show you. This is the place where you're going to worship. Abraham standing there with that lad, with that donkey, and uh, with, with the two servants said, the lad and I are going to go over there and we're going to worship. This is a problem that a whole lot of people have today in the doctrine of worship in thinking that everything that we do in life is worship. It's not. Many of you have uh, English Standard Version and uh, New International Version. Some of you that read out of those translations, you go over to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where it says, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's a bad translation because it's led a whole lot of people to think that everything I do in my life is worship to God. It's not. It's not. Everything in my life I do is service to God or it ought to be. That's the way that we want it. But when we talk about worship, we're talking about mankind drawing near to God in a very special sense. We're coming into his courts. We're coming for a purpose to offer to him the homage, the honor, the supplication to God because that's what he wants. That's what he's commanded us to do. And so in Deuteronomy 12 and verse 5, God tells uh, people through Moses, seek the place that your God chooses. What those people in the Israelite nation had to do was they had to make a physical pilgrimage to go from wherever it was they were to the temple three times a year to worship God. Okay? Their purpose for going there was to offer to him the sacrifices for those three different pilgrim feasts. Oh, do we make a pilgrimage today? 
Do we make a pilgrimage today? <laughs> Only to the building in a nice air-conditioned car, you know, with the... Anyway. Do we make a pilgrimage? You know, the Muslims, don't they make a pilgrimage to Mecca? And you look at some of the ways that people will make their pilgrimage, grueling, grueling things. There's some people that will bow down. It's basically the equivalent, and I mean this respectfully, of giving like a burpee. If you've ever done exercises and you get down all the way to the chest and they'll do chest to ground, they'll get back up and they'll take a step and they'll do the exact same thing again. And they'll do that for hundreds of miles. Why? Because they believe in the pilgrimage and they believe in where it's going to lead them. The Israelites, as they would make this pilgrimage three times a year, Israelite males, of course we know Joseph and his family, Joseph brought his family with him uh, whenever he would come uh, to the temple and offer, but as they would make that pilgrimage, it would be them leaving everything behind, all of their work, all their family, all their household, and they would make this pilgrimage and sometimes they would stay for a month or so in order to offer to God what he was so richly due and to stay in Jerusalem with family. You think it required some forethought to have to leave your business and to have to go and three times a year take this trip because God commanded that's what it was? Consider just for a moment, those people who had to make a physical pilgrimage, we as people ought to make a spiritual pilgrimage. It is still a leaving behind of worries. Well, sometimes you can't do that. It is a leaving behind of job. It is a leaving behind of um, house, of things that are so pressing and so concerning to our lives. But it's coming out of the mundane and the ordinary. And it's coming into the court of God. Not that God lives here in the building, but this is where we come to assemble to worship him. And it's a matter of coming into his presence and making a journey out of the mundane into the special out of the natural, out of the ordinary, into the presence of the supernatural, the one who is spiritual, the one who is spirit. And those, Jesus said, that want to worship him are going to have to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's going out of the world and thinking solely about God and about offering him praises. Look at Hebrews 4, verse 16. Hebrews 4, verse 16. Anybody want to ask a question as we're traveling along. <clears throat> Hebrews writer in talking about our high priest Jesus and how he's opened up the way. He just alludes to it now, but he's going to go and cover it uh, in further detail there in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9. He says, let us therefore, verse 16, come boldly to the throne of grace. That's a picture of the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant. The throne of grace where God's glory sits above the cherubim. And let's come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What God has decided for New Testament worship is not that we go to a geographical place. But it's wherever you decide to enter in his presence, it's an intentional meeting. You're coming into his presence to meet with him. So we ask, what do we do to prepare for worship? We know it's coming, right? It's on the schedule, 10 o'clock Sunday, 6 o'clock Sunday evening. What do we do to prepare? Well, 
put my face on, I do my hair, get the curlers out, and uh, put on the nice clothes and the suit. And while there may be an element to that, the question we better be asking is, what have we done to prepare our hearts for coming into the presence of God? If not, if our hearts and minds aren't prepared, could it be that God might be saying to us, quit bringing me that, stop offering me that, not the fact that we can stop worshiping, but we better get our hearts right if we're going to be the people he wants us to be. Note this number two. Worship must be intentional, but worship must also be costly. Worship must be costly. If you're going to worship, you need to be bringing some things to God. We must bring some things to God if we are going to worship. Kind of like taking a pilgrimage during uh, the Christmas holidays. You ever do that? You know that your family is going to go and meet in a certain place. We used to go up to Tyler to my mom's, and uh, sometimes, you know, she would come over to uh, where we were in San Marcos or where we were in Mon, and, and the kids, one of the first things they were always asked is, Grammy, what have you brought for us? Right? Why? Because they know Grammy hasn't come empty-handed if we're talking about the holidays, we're talking about a birthday or something like that, because, well, Grammy knows what the kiddo's like, doesn't she? Doesn't she, and she clued in with the latest Star Wars toys that Aaron wants and, you know, those other things that Audrey wants and the horses that Claire wants. She knows because why? Grandmas, tell me. They what? Because they tell you what they want, but you also want to bring the things that what? That please them. I left it to my grandmother's dear sweet grandmother one time, and she said, Andy, what do you want for your birthday? I said, surprise me. It was about 16 years old, and I never said that again. You know, bless her heart. She gave me a big stuffed teddy bear, and I thought, you know, a 16-year-old boy with a big stuffed teddy bear. I, I couldn't get it, but again, I, I said, whatever you want, just bring it to me, and she did, and so that's what I got, and uh, once again, I was, I was far more specific next time. Well, the grandmas are going to bring the kids exactly what they want because they know exactly what those children like, and let's not forget, hopefully this is a factor, they love them. Grandmas, you love your grandkids? Well, I hope so. When we talk about the worship of God, does God have some things that he likes? Let's start with this. Does God have things that he doesn't like? Well, we just can go to Isaiah chapter 1 to prove that. So the question is, if God knows that he doesn't like some certain things, are there things that God absolutely does like and God absolutely does want? Doesn't it behoove the people that go and worship him to know and to bring to him the things that he likes? Just like the grandmas might. Worship of God has always been involved with sacrifices, with gifts, and with offerings. There's a principle in Scripture that says, all throughout the Old Testament, throughout the patriarchal age, mosaical age, and into the Christian age, if you're coming to worship, you don't come into worship empty-handed. Let me say that again. When we come to worship, we do not come to worship empty-handed. We're bringing something to God. And what are we bringing to God? What he likes. Let's start with that, what he likes. Flip over to Genesis chapter 4. This is Cain and Abel. A familiar passage to most of us. Process of time, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. In the process of time, verse 3, came to pass, Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. 
Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flocks and of their fat. Note this next part. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Abel brought, Cain brought. What did they bring to God? They brought something to him. What does it say about God? Did he just accept any old thing? The second controversy God ever had with man was over the subject of worship. That's something for us to think about. First one was that a man disobeyed in Genesis chapter 3, but the second one was that Cain brought something and Abel brought something, and God didn't respect Cain and his offering. He did respect Abel and his offering. That ought to tell us something immediately about the principle of worship. How do we know what basis God accepted Abel and rejected Cain? Was it arbitrary? Did Abel have his hair fixed nicer than Cain? Did Abel wear his Sunday best? What basis? Obedience. That precludes that there was something that God said to Cain and Abel that told him exactly what he wanted. Where can I go to look at something like that that might give me a clue about that? Gold star for a person named... No. Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Abel offered a more pleasing sacrifice. What does that mean? There was something that Abel knew about what God wanted. So here's a knowledge. Here's evidence or here's something that God had said. Here's God's word. And what Cain did was say, I'm going to take God's word, even though we don't have record of it, and I'm going to offer based upon what God's word said. And what was the result? Abel was accepted. Here's Cain. Cain obviously had some kind of knowledge about it. Cain had the knowledge and he took his fruit, which God didn't command or which God was not pleased with, and he offered it in spite of knowledge. What was the result? Again, please don't miss the principle of Scripture. When we don't take what God said and offer to him the things that he wants or the things that he likes, we are offering presumptuously and we are not offering by faith. We're offering by something, but it's not faith. Faith is built upon the knowledge of God, upon the word of God, and that's the only way that we know that our sacrifices can be pleasing to him because here's what he said, here's what us responding in obedience, as Roy mentioned, and we know that God accepts the sacrifice, just like what he accepted there with Abel. Look at Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. What's just happened is Noah has gotten off the ark with his sons and with their wives and with his wife. And as Noah gets off the ark, one of the very first things he does there in verses 20 and 21 is he builds an altar. Verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Hold on just a minute. As I recall, animals are in short supply now, aren't they? Hmm? Some of them. <laughs> some of them. We'll go back to Kyle Butt's lecture. But yeah, some of them are. And as he's offering these things, you're talking about him offering something precious, but something that was going to honor God. 
And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma there in verse 21. And the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again strike the ground for men's sake. The imagination of men's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I had done. What God did in smelling the pleasing aroma was based upon the sacrifice of Noah, him offering what was precious at that time and offering what's precious to him. One more. Uh, look at 2 Samuel 24 and verse 24. 2 Samuel 24, 24. Verse 24, King David is saying to Aruna, and they're bargaining over a, a, a threshing floor price. Uh, what's going to happen is, is that David is going to uh, build up an altar of the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna. Well, David goes to Aruna and says, okay, I want to I buy this. And this is summary, summarizing. And Aruna says, no, 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 David, you want it? You'd go ahead and take it. You build your altar right there. And, uh, you want the threshing floor? That's yours. Know what David's response is there in verse 24. The king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. What we understand from this and what we understand for what we're talking about, the worship of God has always involved gifts, sacrifices, and offerings. Something that costs us something. We know we come with something in our hand, and we know that sacrifice has to be a sacrifice. We offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. What spiritual sacrifices do we bring to God when we come to worship? Going back to the grandmothers, what do the grandmothers bring to the kids? What they like what they like. What do we bring to God when we come with our gifts, with our spiritual sacrifices through Jesus Christ? It's what he likes. That's exactly right. What does God like? What has he asked for in our worship? Singing. What else? Prayers. What else? Remembering the Lord's death and burial, partaking the Lord's Supper, what else? We're meeting on the first day of the week. That's the intentional specific time frame that he wants it. Here's the time that you come and you offer collectively as a group your gifts to me. What else is he commanded? All right, worshiping him, but what specific things does he like? We've named three so far by my count. Our money, we bring our money. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. What's the other one? We bring our attention, don't we? We bring our listening ears and our hearts that are ready to receive the word of God so that when his word is brought forth, when God speaks to us, as it were, we're ready to hear. Well, one man brought this up. He said that in four of these five acts of worship, we say something to God but in the preaching and teaching of his word, he says something to us. Yes, sir, Nathan. And 
All right, Nathan brings up an interesting point from John 4, verse 24. All of these things, the obedience, the prayers, the praise, the money, the attention, those things need to be done in spirit and in truth. True or false? True. Here's the question. Can I come with my obedience and prayers and praise and money and attention and do all the right things and have the wrong heart? All right. Question is, is that something God accepts or is he rejected? So even though we're doing all the right things, all the right actions, but we don't do it with the right heart, that's something God rejects. What about the opposite? What if I ignore the word of God and I say, I think God would like this, 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 and I have the right heart, I'm very sincere about what he wants, but I haven't done the things that he says. Is that God, something God accepts or rejects? When Jesus says God is spirit and those who worship him must, imperative, not optional, must worship him with spirit and in truth, those things are joined together so that when we come, it's not just a matter of bringing the right things, it's bringing the things from the right heart. It's not just a matter of bringing God any old thing and having the right heart, but it's a matter of coupling truth with our attitudes, with how we approach him and with uh, the heart that he wants it from. All of these things and concentrating on him, as we offer these things and come with our buckets full and wanting to just pour them out before God, we're letting him know exactly what it is that he has done for us and how grateful we are to him. Which brings us to the last point this evening. Yes, sir, Kerry. Kerry mentions that what God was emphasizing, especially in Isaiah, was that these people had not prepared themselves. Isn't that true? Is it ever a temptation for you and me to kind of roll out of bed first thing on Sunday morning and run around as quickly as possible and, you know, pull on the clothes that are dirty and uh, <laughs> dig to the dirty clothes and say, all right, I got to find something that fits or I got to find something that's, that doesn't have too many stains. And we run in here and we sit down and, whew, whew, oh man, I forgot to write the check. Oh man, I forgot to get the communion supply. Well, that's a more of a problem than it used to be, but you understand that there's a sense in which we come and if we rush and if we don't consider what we're doing before we actually come, then the possibility of it become vain worship is, is very real. Once again, Carrie. It's preparation. It's part of preparation. You're exactly right. Yep. And the question, uh, Doug mentions that the preparation becomes from the time you leave worship until the time that you're back in worship. Here's the question. Do we ever get in the mindset that we come into worship to God to be made holy? 
I've done a whole lot of bad things this week, and I'm going to come into worship, and God's going to scrub me up like a new penny and send me back out there so I can get dirty again. Do we ever get that mindset that worship is just an action that we're going to do and check the box so that we know that we're good with God for another week? Truth is, is that we worship God because we're living holy lives, not because we come in here to be made holy. The psalmist says, worship the God or worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. God's made us a holy people. He set us apart for a sanctified reason. If all I'm doing every week is just getting dirty and, and spending time in sin and doing whatever I want to do, and then I expect that I'm going to come in here and be pleasing to God and that he's just magically going to, well, get a very denominational or a very worldly view of the Lord's Supper, that I take the body and the blood and, woo, I'm good. Everything's great. It's, it's not about that. It's about coming in and worshiping God because we're holy, not to be made holy. George, do you have something? Yeah. The key word in Isaiah is vain. Okay. All right, vanity. Well, worshiping self, you know, is really what it becomes. Sure. Giving God sacrifices without sincerity is useless. God wants the heart, God wants the sacrifice. You know, David asked that question after his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51. Um, sacrifices that please you are a humble and contrite heart. These you will not despise, O God. So the question becomes, does God want the gift or does he want the heart? The answer is yes. Right? He wants both. Plugging into the discipline of worship, a couple of things for you to consider this evening. Prepare appropriately for the meeting. This goes back to what Carrie was saying. Folks, if you've got teenagers at home, if you've got children at home, make sure they get a good night's rest. Make sure that they're in bed by 9.30 or 10. Why? Because it's part of that pilgrimage. If you're getting up and you're going to go to the airport at 3 o'clock in the morning to catch a plane to Disney World, that's a pilgrimage in and of itself you know, for a lot of people. Hey, we're back in the Magic Kingdom, most wonderful place on earth, magical place on earth. But you're going to have those kids in bed at a decent time. Why? Because you want them up and ready to get on a plane at 3 o'clock in the morning so they can get there whenever the gates open. When we talk about every week, we've got this appointment with the King of Kings, with the Lord of Lords. It's not something we can treat Saturday night as our own. It's not something we can look at and say, well, it's just fine, whatever you want to do, and you want to stay up till 3 o'clock in the morning chatting with your friends, oh, great, that's awesome. And then we don't understand why our kids are not plugged in the way they ought to be. Wait, your conscious journey to worship. What do you do to journey to worship? Our tradition in our home is when we get in the car, we start playing songs that we'll be singing in church. And we sing along those songs. All right, Audrey, what song do you want to? What song do you want to hear? What song shall we sing? All right, Aaron, what song shall we sing? Will you lead it for us? And as we're going, we're reminding our children this is something different than going to the soccer game. This is something different than going to the Kroger or the HEB. This is different because we're going into God's presence and we're preparing ourselves and preparing our children for that. Give up your best because He's worthy. Does God know how much we love him by what we offer to him, both in spirit and in truth? God's listening to our hearts. We can put on a great show on the outside, but what God is listening to is what's going on on the inside. Work hard, stay engaged, and I understand it's hard. 
especially with a guy that you got standing before you week to week. I, I see sometimes that eyes close, and I understand bodies fail us sometimes, but work hard to stay engaged. Why? If you knew that the teacher was going over stuff that was going to be on the test later, and you're following along in the review, but you didn't get much sleep the night before, maybe it's just the teacher drones on, kind of like the preacher does, and you just find yourself eyes closing. Do something to help stay engaged. I wouldn't be offended. In fact, I'd be pleased if somebody that was, had their eyes closed and had just had a late night wanted to get up and go stand right in the back so that they would stay more engaged. That's, that's awesome. Great. Good for you. It's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. And as much as you can, don't focus on distractions. The truth is, is that things happen. Cell phones go off. Babies cry. Um, sometimes words are misspelled on a PowerPoint. And if I'm just focusing on those, if I get the mindset that it's my job to just point out every little thing that's going on, I've missed it. And I missed the spirit of worship. What you've got to remember is we've come here to meet with God Regardless of what anybody else did, I have an intention to meet God, I have an intention to give him something, and I have an intention to give it out of the heart that he wants. Is that a high calling? Is that a spiritual discipline? You bet it is. I hope you all have a great rest of the week.